Well, I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. This morning we are going to read and think about the Word of God as it comes to us from chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. And if you want to read along with us in the Pew Bible, you can find Ruth 4, 13 through 22 on page 224. 224. At this time, I will go ahead and dismiss the children, ages 3 to 8, with Miss Kena for the children's Bible lesson. So I uh, hope to communicate to you what amounts to an Advent sermon, a sermon in which we think about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the significance of it. And to do that, I'd like to organize our thinking uh, around the various meanings of the word Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem, as you know, uh, is to this day a small town in the country of Palestine, population of about 25,000 people. It's actually 6.2, if you want to be precise, 6.2 miles south of Jerusalem. So not very far. You could probably, uh, some of you who I guess are pretty spry, you could run that in a pretty short amount of time. might take me a little longer. But nevertheless, 6.2 miles south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. Now, the significance of Bethlehem in the Bible is immense. Uh, To summarize it, uh, Bethlehem was always to be... The birthplace of the kings, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, and through the prophetic writings, it becomes the chosen place for the Messiah to be born. Now, a good, well, one other thing before I uh, go any further. When you read the book of Ruth, one of the things you notice is that this place of Bethlehem becomes more and more significant as you read the story. And so your understanding of Bethlehem is developing as you read the book. And you kind of have this thought of maybe there's more to the name Bethlehem than just referring to a small town six miles south of Jerusalem. So it probably is a wise thing to do to think for a minute about what the name Bethlehem means. I mean, literally, Bethlehem is house of bread. Um, I mean, I'm not oversimplifying it if it just kind of means bakery. I mean, this is a place where you you can go to get bread if you want it. House of bread. Place where you can get bread. That's the literal meaning. But as I said just a bit ago, as you read the book of Ruth, it does become clear that the name Bethlehem stands for a whole lot more than just a small town in Palestine. As you read the book of Ruth and as you listen to its message, it becomes clear that the name of Bethlehem describes any place where you can go and receive bread from heaven. There's a spiritual meaning. There's a spiritual understanding to the name Bethlehem. Bethlehem is any place that you can go To receive the bread of God. And according to Jesus of Nazareth, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
the place on earth where you can go to get that bread, according to the teaching of Ruth, is called Bethlehem. So that's going to require us to think a little bit. So, for example, as we're thinking about the spiritual significance of Bethlehem. So take, for example, what happened on Sunday, January 25th, 1736. So, Lord's Day, 1736, January 25th, there's a 33-year-old English minister on board a ship named John Wesley. And so he's on board a ship headed for America uh, with two groups of people. Uh, One group of fellow Englishmen and another group of a particular kind of German Christians. And so he's in the company of these Christians, and it is in the midst of these Christians that this ship, as you'll see in just a minute, becomes a place where this 33-year-old John Wesley meets Christ and receives Christ in a life-changing way. Now listen to John Wesley's words as he describes his experience on this ship. He said, I had long observed the great seriousness of the behavior of these German Christians. They demonstrated their humility by performing services for other passengers which no one else would undertake. And so one day, Sunday the 25th of January, there arose an opportunity of testing. To what degree were these German Christians, bearing the name of Jesus Christ, delivered? Delivered from the spirit of fear, pride, anger, and revenge. Again, Wesley's words. In the midst of the Lord's Day service, aboard the ship and during the psalm, this is the singing of the hymn, The sea broke over the ship. The sail split in pieces. Waves covered the ship, pouring between the decks. It was as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible scream arose among the English. But the German Christians sung on. So I went to my fellow Englishmen, and I pointed out to them the difference between those that fear the Lord and those that do not. This was the most glorious day which I have hitherto seen. So, my point is, is that when you read the book of Ruth, when you see how the narrator of this story weaves the theme of Bethlehem throughout the events of the book, you realize something. You realize that the name of Bethlehem represents any place and any people where the Son of God comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. If there is a place on earth where the Son of God, bread from heaven, is offered to people, that place and that community where He is offered rightly bears the name of Bethlehem. There's a spiritual significance beyond the geographical location to Bethlehem. And that's what I want to draw our attention to for just a few minutes. This is the sense in which I want you to understand Bethlehem because Bethlehem stands 
for a certain kind of spiritual place and a certain kind of spiritual people. And what I want to do from just the few remaining verses of Ruth chapter 4 is just simply show you that place and show you that people. What kind of place is this? What kind of people are we talking about? So what we want to do is let these verses in Ruth fill out this understanding and perspective of a spiritual Bethlehem. So to that end, I invite you to stand to hear the reading of the Word of God. So Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And what is the significance of the son born to Naomi? They named him Obed. He, Obed, was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez is this one of the sons of Judah. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse, father David. And it's understood when you read the end of the book, you could almost put it like this. And God made promises to David that he has kept to this day. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask you to send the helper, send the comforter, send the spirit whom our Christian faith says inspired these writings. He knows what they mean. He knows the depth and the breadth and the truth of them. He knows where the spiritual food is, and he is the one to take these inspired scriptures And apply them to our mind and heart in such a way that we are enlightened and that we are enfreshed and that we are filled with the fullness of God. So together we ask you for your Holy Spirit. That it would be clear that He is in the room. And that it would be clear that He is communicating His words to your people on your behalf. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I trust many of you are familiar with the story of Ruth, but if you are not, I can just simply say that the story of Ruth, which you could could read in probably about ten minutes, it's just four simple chapters, it's a story, 
a narrative that's very engaging, very gripping. You could easily follow it. But this story takes place in the city and in the surrounding regions of Bethlehem and Judah. But we must remember, when we read the book of Ruth, okay, we are reading it as Christians. (laughs) That's important. Because when we read this story as Christians, we read it in a particular way. We're reading it with an eye and an ear as to what our Lord Jesus would have us see and do based on the story. We're reading it as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we understand that He's using this story to teach us how to live, to teach us how to represent Him in the world. So we hear the story of Ruth in a particular kind of way. And if we listen to the story as He would have us hear it, a real clear message becomes plain. Okay? Now, I hope you can understand this, because if not, we're going to have a tough time for the next 15 minutes. But this is the message of the book of Ruth to you. You are Bethlehem in the spiritual sense. You are now the place on earth where the Son of God comes down from heaven through the means of His holy grace and gives spiritual life to the world. You... And I mean you together as a body. You, Third Presbyterian Church, you are Bethlehem. And so I'm going to do my best to try to persuade you of that. And also to try to persuade you of two things. If we are Bethlehem, how does the book of Ruth teach us to live? I mean, if that's who we are as a community, if we are Bethlehem, How does this little story teach us to live as the people of God? And it's very simple. We live confident in providence. And we live committed to piety. Now it's okay if those two words, providence and piety, are a little fuzzy. Because the book of Ruth is written to teach us what they mean. (laughs) It's okay. Because as we enter into the story of Ruth, providence and piety will become very clear. But if you are Bethlehem, if you are the place on earth where people can come, like that ship headed to uh, America from England, to experience the Son of God, then the Lord Jesus Christ would say, there's a way of life that I would have you all live. I want you to be confident in the providence of God. And I want you to commit yourself to a life of piety. Now those will become clear as we go forward, but let's just take a look at those two and then we will conclude. So by the end of the book of Ruth, we are taught to live with confidence in the providence of God because the story of Ruth is supposed to serve as a perpetual memory for the church. You know, when the Lord Jesus would read these stories, remember, He would read these stories too. He would listen to sermons on the book of Ruth too. And the point of the book is this story is supposed to serve as a perennial, perpetual memory. Don't forget what is written here. This is a perpetual memory for the church. What is the memory? When you lose it all, remember Naomi. 
when you lose it all, remember Naomi. Now, when I say lose it all, I mean if you lose your family, if you lose your finances, worst of all, if you lose your fervor for God, then remember Naomi. She lost all of it. She lost her family. She lost her finances, and she loses her fervor to God. How does this story begin? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of, here it is, Bethlehem in Judea went to live for a while in the country of Moab. It's a neighboring country of Judah, where Bethlehem is a city. This man goes with his wife and two sons. The name of the man, Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons, Machlon Kilion. These are, now notice how he's, he's drawing our attention to Bethlehem. These are Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They go into the country of Moab and re- remain there, but Elimelech, the husband of Ma- Naomi, dies. Now, so we don't miss the point, she was bereft. She was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives, the name of the one, Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there a decade. Both Machlon and Kilion died. What's the significance of that? The woman. She's lost her identity. You lose your husband in Israel. You lose your children in Israel. You lose your identity. She was Naomi. Now she's just the woman. And the woman is left without her two sons and her husband. She has lost her family, she's lost her finances, but it gets worse. When she returns to Bethlehem, she meets her friends. And they say, ha, it's you, Naomi. And she says, you better not call me that. Don't you call me Naomi anymore. You call me Mara. Because my soul isn't sweet anymore. In fact, it's bitter. And you want to know why it's bitter? Because I went away full. And you know what I got now? Nothing. She went away full. She came away empty. Don't you call me Naomi. Call me Mara. You know why? Because God did this to me. You can't lose anything else in this life except your your family, your finances, and worst of all, your fervor for God. And she lost it all. Now this is Naomi. And she's lost it all. But hold up there just one minute. What I just read to you said, Naomi takes the child and lays her on her lap, and the women of the neighborhood say, a son has been born to Naomi. So, she loses it all, but she gets it all back. And then some. Verse 15, your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. So she loses it all, but she gets it all back, and then some. Why did she lose it all? Why did she get it all back? Why does she lose motherhood only to become the queen mother of the kings of Israel? There's only one answer to that, and this is the teaching of the book. The reason why she lost it all, the reason why she got it all back, and then some, is because of God's providence. This whole thing, this is God's doing. (laughs) 
Now, if you were to read the book of Ruth, and if you're to take seriously the way we're reading it, is how would Jesus have us think about this? It becomes really clear when you get done with the book of Ruth and the, the verses we read just a minute ago, it becomes very clear that the Lord Jesus does not simply want us to be aware of providence. Being aware of providence is, I know that this will all work out somehow. That's not what the book of Ruth is after. The book of Ruth is not after us being aware of providence. The book of Ruth is after us being confident in providence. So, again, John Wesley. So after this storm, Wesley approaches one of the German Christian men on the ship. It's now tarnished, and he asks him a very simple question. The most sensible question you could ask that man would be, uh, and this is in Old English, okay, was you not afraid? That's how Wesley asked it. These are his words. Was you not afraid? And this is the man's answer. I thank God, no. To which, if I was there, I'd say, what do you mean you thank God, no? It's either yes or no. (laughs) Are you afraid? Yes. Are you afraid? No. What is this, methinks, I thank God, no. please, Please elaborate. To which he might respond, the reason why we are not afraid, the reason why we kept singing when the ship was breaking and everybody else was screaming uncontrollably is because we are committed to a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Do you know where that sentence comes from? A firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. You know where that sentence comes from? That's the last line of the Declaration of Independence. A firm reliance on divine providence. This used to characterize this land. Where do you think those guys got that? They got it from the church. They got it from the Christians on the ship coming to America. They spread that confidence. And it affected the government and establishment of the nation that you are sitting in. Where did they get that? They got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he looking for? A firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. No, we are not afraid. And that's why. Now let me say this. The teaching of Ruth is that this firm reliance on the protection of God's providence, especially amidst devastating loss, obviously from John Wesley's testimony, it catches people's attention. I mean, let's face facts here. If you are singing when the ship is going down, that is going to turn some heads. That's going to bring forth some questions. That is going to stick out. The point is, is that this confidence in the providence of God, that the book of Ruth is written to communicate to you, it is what distinguishes this group from that group. It is what separates the church from the world. That is what makes you, you. That is what makes a place Bethlehem, if you will. There is this confidence that God is in our midst. And that's enough. That's sufficient. And guess what, friends? That is attractive. That is compelling. 
That makes people want to ask questions about your faith. Now, bearing that in mind, what does the book of Ruth say, or where does the book of Ruth say, that this kind of confidence in the Lord comes from? Now, here's where we do well to take a close look at these two figures, Boaz and Ruth. Because if we were to read the whole story and see it as a whole, we would clearly perceive that they, had so, they have something that the Lord would have you and I to imitate. They have something that the Lord can use. They have something that the Lord Jesus can use to connect people to the bread of life. That's what this whole idea of Bethlehem is about. You are a place where God can connect people to the bread of life, to His Son. Okay, what does God use? That's what this story communicates. What is the raw material uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to use to connect people who don't know the Lord, who don't care about the Lord, who may even be antagonistic to the Lord? What's He going to use to bring them to Him through you? And the answer in the book of Ruth is piety. Now, another word for that is devotion. In the Old Testament, it is called the fear of the Lord. Fundamentally, okay, it is an attitude. It is a commitment. It is a posture toward the Lord Himself. It's a way of revering God. It's a way of knowing Him. In the book of Ruth, it looks like two things. And the character of Ruth teaches us one part of piety, and the character of Boaz teaches us another part of it. So, from Ruth, we learn that piety is essentially loyalty. Loyalty to God, loyalty to neighbor. And it is famously put in Ruth chapter 1, and piety, loyalty, in the book of Ruth, it's often called steadfast love, for you Hebrew lovers, it's called chesed. We can talk more about that later. But what is this characteristic? Verse 16. Ruth says to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you, better translation, forsake you, or to return from following you. Why? Because where you go, I go. Where you lay, I lay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I die. Where you're buried, I'm buried. And in case you're not convinced of this, I'm going to make a vow. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's called loyalty. This is a fundamental ingredient in biblical piety. This is the type of reverence and faith that God uses to do things that nobody else thinks can be done. That's the first part of it. So we have this piety, this devotion, this attitude toward God that is at its core loyalty. And also at its core it is integrity. Loyalty and integrity. Loyalty we learn from Ruth. Integrity we learn from Boaz. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Boaz comes from Bethlehem. 
And he says to the reapers. So he is a very wealthy, very influential businessman. He's in the grain business, and he has a very large operation. The reapers would be his employees and his overseers, several layers of, if I can use these terms, uh, organizational leadership. (laughs) This is a big operation. So he's speaking to his mid-level management. What are the first words that come out of his mouth? The Lord. What's on Boaz's mind? The Lord. What does he think about? The Lord. How does he organize his business? What's good for God? What kind of character does a God-centered, Lord-centered mind and man produce? Watch this. Whose young woman is this? Not what can she do for me, not what can I do to her. She's a foreigner, she's young, she's vulnerable, he owns it all, he can do whatever he wants. What's the first question out of his mouth? Who does she belong to? Thou shalt not covet another man's wife. The word of God, the commandments of God are governing his thoughts. Who does she belong to? He finds out that she's a Moabite. He finds out that she is a sojourner. And that means she gets special treatment. Why? Because that's what the Lord himself established. And Boaz's integrity is, I will live according to what my God commands. In my daily affairs, I am going to figure out what does it look like to keep my Lord's commandment in this situation, and I'm going to do it. The Bible calls that integrity. You put integrity with loyalty, you get piety, and when you get piety, you've got the types of things that God can use to bring forth kings. The point of the book is that this is where the kings of Israel come from. This is the spiritual heritage of the royal line that culminates in Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, this is your history. This is our history. This is the book where we learn how to live. So... Out of this piety, this devotion, the Lord creates a monarchy out of these two. That's the point of the verses that we read. Boaz takes Ruth, she becomes his wife. The Lord gives conception and bears a son. And who is this son that's been born to Naomi? Lo and behold, it is the progenitor of the royal line that brings forth David. How does the New Testament begin? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the son of David. What does that mean? He is the one who's going to bring forth God's kingdom on earth and his will as it is in heaven. This is the one who's going to do it. Where did it start? It started with Boaz and Ruth. Why? Because they loved God and they kept his commandments. That's why. Now, the place where this whole story happens, by the end of the story of Ruth, you realize, wait a minute. Why does this narrator keep weaving the word Bethlehem throughout all this? What's the significance of Bethlehem? Is that when you live like this, you become somebody that God can use to communicate Christ to. And he does it in such a way that it's effective and transformative. All right. Now we're going to wind down here. Um, And so let me say two more things before we pray. Uh, we actually just, the Sunday school class that uh, meets downstairs, you know, we, we've been working through the book of Ruth for several months. And so we spent a long time 
talking about piety and trying to communicate it to a group of younger people. And, you know, one of the things that became clear there, and one of the things that has become clear to me in this church over the last 18 months or so, and I hope you'll hear what I'm about to say with sincere faith, because I believe with all my heart that it's true, that biblical piety, everything that I just said, okay, that creates a culture. That creates an atmosphere. And it creates a culture and an atmosphere of irresistible grace. When you love God and you give yourself to a devoted, pious way of life, that makes this room into a certain kind of place. It transforms a sanctuary into a certain kind of place so that when you come in here, if you don't know God, if you don't like God, if you don't know why you got here, when you leave, you have an experience of what our tradition calls irresistible grace. I am attracted to what was going on in that room. I would like to come back. I would like to consider what it is that they actually believe because I am inspired by how they live. I'm not necessarily inspired by this or that person. I'm inspired by all of them. The way they love God, the way they love one another, the way they are committed to God, that creates a culture of irresistible grace. Loyalty to Christ, integrity in daily affairs makes you irresistibly attractive to unchristian people. It makes you Bethlehem. Now let me end by proving that to you in a very simple but for me very profound way. 1930, a 24-year-old German Christian and teacher uh, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes to the United States. He only came one time to the United States and it was in the year 1930. He came to study at a theological school called Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He was very disappointed with what he saw. But he found his way through the providence of God to a place called the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York. And it was there uh, that he, made, he became dear friends with one of the pastors. And Bonhoeffer somehow found his way to teaching Sunday school. And as you can imagine, it's Harlem, New York. He's got a big group of kids in his Sunday school class. Um, you know, if those kids are anything like any other kid I've ever been around... You know, you can imagine that they're lively, they're probably disruptive, they're energetic, uh, probably a little rambunctious, you know, all the things that kids are. And so uh, what amazed the rest of the congregation about Bonhoeffer was how he was able to get their attention. I mean, Bonhoeffer was able to communicate Christ to these children in ways that astounded the rest of the community. And everybody kind of watched him and said, how is he able to do that? And as people observed him, they noticed that his quiet voice quieted them. His sincere devotion moved them. They noticed that he actually cared about what he was talking about. And so it moved them. He has this genuine love for God. And it attracted them. They came back. And the point is, is that through his disposition, through his piety, 
Jesus Christ became irresistibly attractive to those kids. And that's how the gospel moved in the city of New York at a time when all the institutions around the church, spiritually speaking, were coming down. Piety transcends the problems. That is the message of the book of Ruth. That's how Jesus would have us hear it. So the point is, is if you can go with me on this point, if you'll allow me to say to you that you are Bethlehem, that you are the place, you are the people through whom any and all may receive bread from heaven, and it will be your confidence in God's providence, and it will be your commitment to a way of life called piety, that I assure you, (laughs) based on what is written in the book of Ruth, based on the heritage and Christian testimony of the church, God will use it. He will bring forth things from you, as the New Testament says, no eye could see, no ear could imagine, no mind could fathom what God will do for those who love Him. And that's a good thing to remember when we think about the descent of the Son of Man during the season of Advent. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it is the testimony of the apostles that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for correction, and for building us up, but on this day for training us and teaching us in righteousness. Father, it is my deep conviction that the Old Testament has the resources that we need to be the people of God now and into the future. And so we pray that you would give us faith in these writings, that we would trust these resources, and that we would let writings like the book of Ruth shape us and prepare us for the future. And may we draw confidence in what is written and what is taught here. And so we give you thanks for this means of grace today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.